There is no other name on heaven and earth whereby men can be saved in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. Suzanne and I enjoyed our time in Michigan last week. We got to um, what renew acquaintance, spend time with Pris and Brandon and, and the grandkids. Uh, and uh, it was a great, great time. It, not restful, but it was a great <laughs> active time of spending time with, uh, with family and playing with and holding grandbabies. I got to tell you, there's nothing like it. And so exciting days for us. We appreciate the respite. And my appreciation to Nathan and Tessa Baker for their sharing last week about their work and the way that they brought the story of Barnabas and his going and getting Saul from Acts chapter 11 last week. I want you to be aware, because sometimes we get so accustomed to life as we know it and gathering and seeing the same faces. But as a member of this congregation, both through your prayers, hopefully intentionally, but and as we remind you and as we bring things to highlight, but both through your prayers and through your offerings, uh, through the decisions this church makes when it comes to our budget, you have a part in the gospel being spread around the world. You have a part in people being fed around the world. You have a part in the disasters that are being addressed and the families that are being ministered to through disaster relief around the world. Uh, and so it's exciting to know that at least at some level we have an uh, opportunity to be engaged to display the love of Christ. We'll see a little bit about that in our in our message this morning. I do hope you have your Bibles that you've been in Acts. We're going to be looking at this passage and we, it's almost uh, a, a little, uh, it, it's almost like a paragraph because in Acts chapter 9 we begin with this amazing conversion experience of the Apostle Paul. Now, he's not the Apostle Paul now. He's the terrorist Saul on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians when Jesus knocks him off his horse, puts him flat on his back. He comes into Damascus blinded. He encounters the Lord Jesus Christ on the road. He is radically transformed. He gets a vision of Ananias coming. Ananias gets a vision sending him and and Paul is given directions and instructions and his mission, even told how much he's going to suffer for the name of Christ. We, we then see that Saul, while in Damascus, begins to preach, goes out into the Nabataean wilderness there uh, of Arabia, Nabataean Arabia. And there he spends three years and then comes back to Damascus. So from his conversion, three years in Damascus, the wilderness, back to Damascus. And then he comes to Jerusalem. Not a warm welcome in Jerusalem. Not from the Christians. His reputation was so um, well known uh, that they doubted his conversion. They didn't welcome him with open arms. Barnabas came and reintroduced him. He basically came and shared Saul's testimony with the disciples. He met with them there probably for about 15 days with Peter. And then he goes on and he begins to teach, to share the gospel that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is the Messiah, is the promised one. And he does this in the Hellenistic synagogues and the Greek-speaking synagogues and and, of course, it angers them. They seek to kill him. And I would imagine Paul was like, you know, Lord, leave me here. Let me just work on this so we can get this squared away. Uh, you know, it'll take some time. But God said, no, you need to go and you need to get away. The disciples also said you need to get away, the apostles. And so they sent him, sent Saul down to uh, Caesarea from which he went up through Cilicia and back to his hometown of Tarsus. And he spends about seven more years there. 
So 10 years from his conversion to Acts chapter 11, which Nathan brought to us last week when Barnabas goes and gets Saul and brings him to the new church that started in Antioch to teach there. And this is before Saul becomes known as Paul and goes on his missionary journeys. And then Luke, telling this story, kind of in this passage, is doing one of those, meanwhile, back at the camp. (laughs) Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, there's another champion of the church. Meanwhile, there's another man who is called by God, commissioned to be a fisher of men. There's another man who is known as the preacher of Pentecost. He's the man who went to the temple and preached in 5,000 people, believed, and their lives were transformed. And that's just counting the men. There were women and, and young people there as well whose lives were transformed by this missionaries, or this preacher's preaching, and it is Peter, who is known as basically the preacher of Pentecost, the one who most often proclaims the Word of God in Scripture. Now, where we left Peter was, you remember when the Holy Spirit sent Philip to Samaria to preach the gospel. And as he preached there, many believed, and the Jews heard about it. As a matter of fact, in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 8, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had heard the Word of God, They sent to them Peter and John. So Peter and John, again, this duo, they head up to Samaria to confirm what took place. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for He had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so they affirm God's working. And this is one of those... um, uh, milestone experiences in the church where as a witness to uh, to not only the people in Samaria but primarily to the believers and Jews who went through their Pentecost this is basically a Samaritan Pentecost uh, a sign and evidence that yes this is God's work yes we are part of the same body those Samaritans and Jews and certainly not unified apart from Christ and so Peter affirms that God uses Peter and John there uh, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and he affirms the work that is taking place. But as he leaves, down in verse 25 of chapter 8, it says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem and preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So from Samaritan, uh, Samaria back to Jerusalem, and along the way, village to village, town to town, preaching the gospel. This is the Peter who preached at Pentecost, the Peter who preached in the temple courtyard, the Peter who preached in many villages of the Samaritans. And in our text today that we read, verse 31, Peter was going here and there among them. He was continuing to travel. His home base was Jerusalem. That's where he was centered and focused. But he was traveling. He was being obedient to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus spoke to the disciples and said, After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We tend to think that the apostles were not, that only the believers who had gotten saved were persecuted and went out. I want you to know the apostles were missional as well. They were engaged in obediently being active to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this increased significantly after Acts 8.1, where the church began to be persecuted. And yet we see them engaged and involved in being on mission. Uh, one of the uh, books that I read in preparation for looking at the, the life of Peter particularly, 
What's comparing and contrasting Peter and Paul, we see Paul later becoming a career missionary. That's what we would call him. A career missionary, a champion of the church who went around proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. You see Peter mostly being a local church pastor and preacher who went on short-term mission trips. He went here and encouraged the Christians. He went there and encouraged the Christians, preaching the gospel as he traveled. And we see his intentional, ongoing ministry. He was faithful to always be on mission. He preached before persecution. He preached while the persecution was taking place. And we see him preaching when there was peace and when the persecution had abated. And so the first thing I just want us to recognize before we even get with any any substance into our text is that Peter was always on mission, and as he was always on mission, we are, as followers of Christ, always on mission. Now, the last time that we looked at Acts, we saw the Lord Jesus was teaching, we saw that God was teaching Paul two hard lessons. Remember, you do the hard lessons first. The first was patience. Ten years from his salvation to when Barnabas went and found him. In Tarsus to come to Antioch, 10 years he was teaching him patience. But he was also teaching him humility. The churches were being strengthened. People were being saved. And Paul was in Tarsus. Now, he was serving God, I'm confident, in Tarsus. He was being prepared and he was being equipped. 10 years of isolation and preparation before a lifetime of mobilization and ministry. God taught him patience, but he also taught him humility and dependence upon God. Paul the champion. Paul the, the, the high achiever. Paul the one who was always the top of his class. Always the first to sign up. Always the one who did a little bit more. Whatever task he was given. Now, seemingly, he's on the back burner and he's being taught dependence upon God. But he's not being complacent. I want you to understand... We'll get to this later, but Paul in Tarsus was not on vacation. This was not respite. This was not, I'm just going to rest here and wait on the Lord Jesus to tell me what to do. He was actively engaged from what we have in Galatians, what we have in Acts 22, 29. We have a testimony of a man who is fully engaged in being on mission. From the time he was saved till the time he heard God's calling upon his life. Learning dependence, not pride, dependence upon God. But dependence does not mean apathetic. It does not mean complacent. Paul was, I don't know what you call it, uh, ADHD? Uh, Paul was uh, intrinsically motivated? None of those are accurate. Let me tell you what Paul was. Paul was driven. He was driven. He was passionate. He wasn't a go to church on Sunday kind of guy. He was a I'm serving Jesus who saved me and rescued me and who has come to save and rescue the world. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to be used by Jesus. He did not fit Christianity into his schedule. When it was convenient, when it was easy, when he could make it work. Paul was one who was always, always on the job. Always striving, always toiling to glorify God by being obedient 
and sensitive to every leading and every opportunity that God had given to him because of the calling that he placed upon his life. I do think, and we will see in later studies, I do think that one of the dangers of North American Christianity is it becomes a habit, a pattern, something that we add into our lives. And we have, to a great extent, lost the expression of our first love by our passionate obedience, by our enthusiasm to be who God's called us to be. In Romans 15, we get a great picture of Paul and his being on the go for Christ. He's writing to the church at Rome, and he says in Romans 15, 22 through 25, he said, For this reason I've often been prevented from coming to you, but now there's no further place for me in these regions. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. We get a touch of, of Paul's itinerary. He says, I've got a passion. I want to proclaim the gospel to people who don't know the gospel. I want to talk about Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. I want to be the messenger of God to people who have never been exposed to this clear, specific teaching truth about Jesus and who He is and how He is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world, how that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, how that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him, how that now when we come to Him in repentance and faith, He becomes our very life. I want people to understand the old sacrificial system and how that it has been supplanted by the living sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want people to understand how we live now as a believer, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind as we get into the Word of God and understand the truth God has for us. And I want to do it where nobody's done it yet, but I can't right now because I am fulfilling my task in this area. I want to come to see you guys in Rome but not as a final destination. I want to stop there. You're a waypoint as I go to Spain. And when I come, I want to spend a little bit of time with you, and then I want to take up an offering. I want you to help me so that we have the resources that we need to get to Spain. But I can't do that now because I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I want you to understand and just get a picture of this guy's itinerary. Are you guys busy? Are you busy? Are your days filled? Are your calendars filled? Are the demands here and demands there? I want you to know that Paul was doing this vocationally. All right, I want you to understand that. he would. This was his life. This was not something that he did as a job. This is not something that he did avocationally. This was his vocation. This was his calling. This was his life. And he was highly motivated and passionate. And he was always on mission. And we have the same responsibility to always be on mission whatever our vocation Whatever our avocations, we always are to be representatives and ambassadors for Christ. We're always to be obedient. We're always to be people profoundly impacted by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was dependent upon the leading of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. But he wasn't sitting back and doing nothing until it happened. Paul was at work. And he was seeking where God was at work. He was on the go looking for opportunities. And that is an illustration or at least another example of what we see happening in the life of Peter in our text. All of his preaching. 
here and there, he was proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while we are convinced that God must be at work, we also understand that God issues commands. While we know that we need to see where God is working and join Him in His endeavor, we know that there are things that we are to be doing all the time. Things that we are to be doing as a manner of living, as a way of life. And some of us may be waiting on God to give us clear direction. And I don't know where you are in your life or where you are in your calling, but I do know that sometimes we just wait on God to open a door. We wait on God to give us clear guidance. We hit those transitional periods in life where we are waiting for God to reveal the next step. As a church, we've been meeting at the Hilton for a number of years. Uh, We have been waiting on God to open the next step geographically as far as the building is concerned. And praise the Lord, we're seeing some movement that way. God is opening doors and we are headed back to the West End. Now, I will tell you, it's hard to wait. It's hard to be in transition. But what do you do while you wait? What do you do while you're waiting for the next step, for the next clarity, clear uh, move to make? What do you do? You do the things you know to do. You be obedient to the commission to make disciples. You be growing and depending upon God and growing in your prayer life, learning how to talk with God and how to worship. We are never to sit back waiting for divine opportunities and never taking them. Christians who typically just sit back and say, all right, God, drop this in my lap, drop this in my lap. Even when God does, they don't recognize those opportunities. But Christians who are obedient to go while remaining submissive to the Spirit's leading are those who see God at work and who join God at work. So while we are dependent, we aren't complacent. We follow where God leads. And the first encounter we have in this passage takes place in Lydda, where the saints gathered in Lydda. There, was, there were Christians there. They were gathered. Lydda is uh, Lod, the Old Testament name for this town. It is where the Ben-Gurion airport is there in Israel. Um, and picking up in verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, this is a very brief encounter, and there's not a lot of information here. Who is Aeneas? Is he a Gentile? It's a Hellenistic name. Is he a Jew? Is he already a believer? Uh, We don't know. Uh, But we see a continuation of God's work through Peter's faithfulness. I want us to just kind of look at this miracle that takes place. There's a reason this miracle takes place. Now, there was a great miracle of healing. He had been bedridden. He was paralyzed and had been so for eight years. And it was known. Peter came to him. And again, God allowed Peter to perform a miracle of healing. Jesus healed this man. And look at how Peter does this. Peter comes to him and says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, does this remind you of a paralyzed man being told to rise and pick up his bed? Does this remind you of any accounts from the Gospels? In Mark chapter 2, you have the four friends who bring the paralytic and tear a hole in the roof and set him to Jesus. And Jesus forgives his sins. 
And then says, which is easier for me to say, forgive your sins or arise, take up your bed and walk. And as a demonstration of the inward healing in life he has given him, he heals him outwardly and he takes up his bed. This is very similar to the same experience that Peter would have witnessed Jesus do in Mark chapter 2. But what I want you to recognize here is that the focus is on Peter's obedience. The focus is upon the healing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus heals you. Rise, make up your bed, which is a great verse for you to teach your teenagers, don't you think? Rise, make up your bed. No, this make up your bed could be take up your bed. It certainly means to roll up the pallet that you've been laying on. It means to get off of what was supporting you because now you haven't, you don't need it anymore. You have new life, you have new health. And immediately he rose. I, I love this because... Peter was not about building his kingdom. Look at what I can do. He was not about building a reputation for himself. Peter, while we recognize him as the champion of the church, would not recognize himself as the hero of the story. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified and who died and was buried and who was raised again on the third day, and who lives today, the promised Messiah, because He lives, He is able to heal you. And then we get the greater miracle than Aeneas is healing. The greater miracle, verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw Him, and they turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord. It's a greater miracle. I'll tell you one truth about Aeneas. He was healed, but eventually that healed body got sick again. It wore out again, and it died. All right? Just like we're going to see about Tabitha. She was brought back from the dead, but she died again, physically. The greater miracle is the miracle of eternal life. Life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Life which does not end. Life which surpasses these bodies. Life which is greater in cost and life which, is, life which is greater in consequence, the greater miracle. And so Peter, intentionally traveling here and there, intentionally being on mission, intentionally always being on mission, was serving God, trusting Him to honor the gospel and to save souls. Now, Peter, while Peter was in Lydda, we pick up with the second kind of event that takes place in this narrative, in this story. There is a, a woman in the town of Joppa whose name is Tabitha. Now, Tabitha is Greek, and it means gazelle, G-A-Z-E-L-L-E, gazelle, like the, like the animal. There, uh, actually, that's the Aramaic, uh, is, the Greek is Dorcas, uh, and so that's why she is called both in the passage of Scripture, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was a wonderful woman. She had a great reputation in the community. She was a believer, a disciple of Christ, and she loved her people. She loved her community. She was a really a Proverbs 31 woman who put her hands to meeting the needs of those around her. She was full of good works and acts of charity, but physically she got sick, and physically she died. Now, as was the custom in that day, because of uh, uh, the threat of contamination, the Jews, you know, do not embalm bodies. They bury typically on the same day that the person dies or the next day. 
And so as soon as she had died and passed away, they prepared her body. They put it in the upper room. They washed her, prepared for burial. But since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples knew that Peter was there. They sent two men to urge him, to invite him to come. And basically, all they said was, please come to us without delay. And we can assume that they told him what was taking place. But I want you to understand something here. Peter had to be flexible, and this was not part of his plan Peter had a planned trip. He was going from this place to that place. He was going hither and yon, here and there. And now all of a sudden someone's coming up and saying, hey, we have need of you over here. And Peter immediately redirects his direction. Verse 39, Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. And he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Now, does this remind you of any of the miracles of Christ? Do you remember in Mark chapter 5, we talked about Mark chapter 2, where Jesus healed the paralytic and told him to take up his bed. In Mark chapter 5, we have a, a ruler of the Jews, or a Roman guy, uh, who, who had a good reputation. His name was Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, actually. His name was Jairus, and his daughter had become sick, sick unto death. And then she died. Jesus came. Jesus ran everyone out of the room. Uh, in Mark chapter 5, uh, Jesus moved everyone out of the room. And, and uh, picking up in Mark 5.39, when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. Their response was to laugh at them, laugh at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went where the child was. Taking her, Jairus's daughter, by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Here we have a wonderful example of Peter emulating Jesus. Peter, when he got there and saw that Tabitha had passed away and he heard the testimony of her goodness to the community, he moved them out of the room. He had them vacate the room, just as Jesus had done with those surrounding Jairus' daughter. The difference when Jesus was with the daughter, it doesn't say that he prayed. Peter knelt and prayed. The difference is that Peter is serving Jesus. He's not Jesus. It's not Peter who brings Tabitha to life, but Jesus. Peter's role is prayer. He's not raising her. He's asking Jesus to raise her. And we're talking again about dependence upon the power of God working in you and through you. And Peter looks at her and he says, Tabitha kumi. Jesus said Talitha. is one letter difference between what Jesus Jairus' daughter, which is little girl, arise, and what he said, what Peter says to Tabitha, Tabitha, arise. And she opens her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And the fruit of that interaction was it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. So just kind of what we're learning, what we see through this passage of Scripture, what we see through the experience of Peter, number one is that he's always on mission. But number two is that he always allows God, or at least in these texts, he is allowing God to changes plans and the second thing we need to recognize is that we need to be flexible while we are always on mission 
We always allow God to redirect our direction. Not to change our, our, our mission to be ambassadors for Christ. Not to change our commitment to the Jesus who saved us. Not to change our passion for the people that He's placed around us. But the expression of that. God, where do you want me to be? God, how am I interacting this situation? And sometimes we can become so devoted to a plan of action. Sometimes we can become so devoted to a particular task or a narrow scope of this is clarity for me and God has a different plan entirely and He changes our direction. We see that at salvation. We see it when God invades our life and completely changes the direction of life. Whether you're a a, a, a Galilean fisherman that Jesus says, come and I will make you a fisher of men, whether you're a terrorist persecuting the church, and Jesus says, you'll be my missionary to the Gentiles moving forward. Regardless, salvation is a radical direction change in your life. But even as believers, we can have this sense of calling or this sense of direction, and we are engaged in doing what we know to do, and all of a sudden, a door is opened, an opportunity arises. We become aware of a need somewhere else. And He may send you like Philip to Samaria. He may send you like Nathan and Tessa to Madagascar. He may send you like Andrew and Samantha to Turkey. He may send you like Scott and Susan to India. He may send you to Piedmont. To plant a church. He may send you around the world. He may send you next door. The key is to be able to sense where he's calling. And one of the ways that he does that is he simply makes you aware of the need. Now I am very cautious to say with all clarity. Every need does not constitute a call. Every need does not constitute a call. God has not chosen to use you as an individual to address every need that you become aware of. Number one, it'd kill you. You can't do it. Number two, you'd be taking opportunities from someone else. God has divinely appointed to take care of that responsibility. But most of the time, our problem is not that we want to respond to every need. Most of the time, our problem is we don't want to respond to the needs that we should respond to. And we need to be careful that we don't close a door that God opens. Whether it be redirecting you for a conversation with a person that you had not intended to talk to, whether it be directing you to a place or a ministry or an opportunity or an area of service, the, the need displayed might be the means by which God says, here's a need that I've designed for you. Here's an Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 53. I've already given him the scroll. I've already given him the passage. I have put him on the road, and I'm going to put you on the road right beside him. I need you to talk to him. Here's a person at work that's working alongside of you that you may have talked to about this, that, or the other, but you've never talked to about Jesus. And here comes the opportunity. Here's the need. Here's the opportunity. Step up and take this responsibility. Here's a, here's a group of people that you can connect with. And so we need to make sure that we are sensitive and flexible to following the leading of God in our lives. Now, Peter did. 
And the result was that Dorcas was brought back to life. I do want you to know that the power for Dorcas, Tabitha, the, the power for her being resurrected was not Peter's power. Peter prayed. And power always follows prayer. Our power is always preceded, is a better way to say that. The power of God working in you and working through you is always preceded when you're on your face before Him. When you are committed to Him, when you are yielded to Him, when you are confessed and cleaned before Him, and when you become a vessel of honor fit for the Master's use. Second Timothy chapter 2. And so for us to see the power of God working in and through our lives, we need to be people of prayer. And we'll be amazed what God does. And what is the fruit of this, by the way? The fruit of this, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed the Lord. Peter went obediently, both by plan and by uh, opportunity, with flexibility. And the end result of his obedience was people getting saved. People believed in the Lord. So we ought always to be on mission. We ought always to be willing to change direction at the leading of the Holy Spirit. We ought to always be expecting God to change lives. And then the third point is found in one verse. And it is verse 43 of our text. And it says simply, And he, this is Peter, after seeing Tabitha raised from the dead, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, Simon was Peter's name. You remember that, right? And it was a very common name, so it's not uncommon that there would be a, another Simon that he would stay with. I will tell you this, that hotels and motels were not the norm of the day, and the places that were roadside inns were not safe places, and so people were commanded and were engaged in hospitality. And Peter had a reputation by this time. You think if, if Peter needed a place to stay, would you have invited him over? I guarantee you he had a lot of doors open to him places to stay but he went and stayed with a guy named simon the tanner you guys know what a tanner is he tans hides now i didn't understand what that was for a long time because i thought it had something to do with how parents discipline their children because my dad told me on several occasions boy i'm gonna tan your hide what it means is to prepare an animal skin for use. It's making leather. Leather. It is, it is uh, working with dead animals and, and their skin, their hides, and tanning them, preparing, for, preparing them for useful purposes. Were there Jews that were tanners? Yes. Was it a respected profession? No. Why? Because it was every day working with dead animals. The bodies of dead animals, parts of the bodies of dead animals. One Jewish rabbi wrote, It is impossible for the world to do without tanners. But woe to him who is a tanner. It was also grounds for divorce for a Jewish woman who after marriage discovered that her husband was a tanner and didn't tell her. She could, without recrimination, be divorced. It was not a respected vocation for a Jew. And Peter was a Jew, and this Simon the Tanner was a Jew. I want you to see what's taking place in Peter's life. Peter was a Galilean fisherman, all right? But he was a devout Jew. He did the temple sacrifices, he carried the offerings. Peter, as a businessman, 
and even as a follower of Christ, gave his alms at the temple. They went to the synagogues. They practiced, to a great extent, the ritual cleansing necessary before eating, except in those occasions where Jesus led them in a different direction to teach them a truth. We find that in the Gospels. Peter had no love for the Samaritans. He certainly had no love like we think of the love that we're to have for one another, for Gentiles. The Jews were God's people. And when Jesus came, he came to the Jew first. And God would, Peter was used by God to be the witness to the Jews, the people who were like people from his background, the people of his race, the people of his ethnicity, the people of his training. And we see now, both in the command in Acts chapter 1 and in his time spent with Jesus and in this mission that God is working not only through Peter for the gospel, he's working in Peter to change and broaden his perspective. Peter is not called as the missionary to the Gentiles, but he becomes the first apostle as a missionary to the Gentiles, or one of the first apostles as a missionary to the Gentiles opening the minds of Jewish Christians to the ever-increasing scope of God's love and God's grace. We obey the things we know. We follow God's leading to people in places that we do not anticipate in order to reach the lost. And as we do so, we find that He is working in us to change our perspectives, to make us biblically minded, to conform us to the image of his son. Peter, one of the champions of the church. Now we're going to look at him in chapter 9, which is today, and then we'll look at him in chapter 10, the first part of chapter 11 as well, and see the impact that Peter has as a champion of the church, as a leader, as one who is being conformed to Christ, and the impact that he makes upon the church and the worldwide mission through his obedience and through his standing for what is right. From an arrogant and cocky man of thunder... Peter became a humble and willing, obedient servant of the Lord even unto his death. He rejoiced in the day of his death, knowing that he would be reunited, reunited with his beloved Savior. Peter lived to be about 65 years old. The first half of his life, the second half of his life from 33 on, would be devoted to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lowly fisherman who became a mighty fisher of men. A simple individual who God used in a great way for his glory. One that changed and shaped the world forever and is still shaping the world. Through his testimonies recorded through scripture and the scripture that God used him to write. And I want us to experience the same moving, the same power. I want us to have the same reputation of these disciples as they walked in obedience to God. One thing, a brief excursus, just as we close. When Tabitha died, she was missed. Community wept because of the impact she had made in their life. Can I give us a very, very simple means of living gospel-focused lives? Love the people around you. Meet their needs. Do it overtly. Do it aggressively, not apathetically. 
Do it intentionally and do it in the name of Jesus, dependent upon His power. So that our presence is known in our community. So that we'll be missed when we're gone, but more than that, so that the name of Christ is glorified in us while we're here. Amen? Amen. Isn't God good? Father, I want to thank you for this testimony of Peter. It's kind of his short-term mission trip as he goes first to Lydda and then he's redirected and he goes to Joppa. We see him there, Father, being obedient to you, always on task, always on mission, going hither and yon, going to and fro, uh, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus lives and that Jesus saves today. Father, I pray that we will be much like Peter, that we will emulate him by always being on mission, but not being so hidebound to a plan that we, we miss the opportunities that you place before us and we allow you to change our plans. Father, as we walk in obedience to you, knowing that you work through us for the good of our neighbors and for the good of our community and for the glorification of your name, that you work in us and continue to do that. Work in us to conform us to the image of your Son, that it may continually be less of us and continually be more of you. Be glorified in us today. We love you. In your name I pray.